0: Let's do it. All right, everybody ready? All right. (laughs)
1: Okay. (laughs) Sorry. I'm just waiting for you to stop talking. One, two, three, serious.
0: (laughs) Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I am Michael Calori, a senior editor here at Wired. I am here with Wired senior writer Lauren Good. Hello. And Wired senior writer Ariel Pardes.
2: I'm back. Hello.
0: How long has it been?
1: It's been a couple episodes for sure.
0: Yeah, a couple. couple.
1: It's been quite, it's been at least a couple of months, I think. And now I look forward to the tweets and the fan mail will inevitably get where people will say, I couldn't tell the difference between your voices. I love getting that feedback. (laughs) Yes. I really do. Let's just intentionally confuse them.
0: I never get that feedback. My voice is totally unique. (laughs) It's highly a unique. I sound like absolutely nobody else. Well, Ariel, it's great to have you back on the show after what feels like a year of you not being here. Uh, later on, we're going to be joined by Wired senior writer uh, Lily Hay Newman, who is going to be bringing us up to speed on what is the haps with the security industry. Uh, but first, we're going to talk about a story that you wrote this week on Wired.com called Silicon Valley Ruined Workplace Culture. It's all about how the laid back atmosphere of startup offices has taken over other work Places outside of the technology industry. You argue that this kind of low key environment has made it harder to separate work from our personal lives. Tell us more.
2: Sure. So there was a time 10, maybe even 20 years ago, when having perks like free food in the office or a nap room felt really novel and really uniquely tech. Like I remember uh, the first person I knew who worked for Google. Telling me about the perks that they received at the Google campus in New York and just feeling like, wow, I cannot believe that an office could be like that. A place that's fun, a place where people are well fed, a place where you could get beer on tap and maybe even jump in a ball pit. Of course, this is kind of like a parody of what Silicon Valley is like, but um, this idea has really caught on and has spread not only around the tech industry, where now, you know, Google's culture is sort of this hallmark that's spread to many other companies, um, but it's also spreading much, much beyond the tech companies and much beyond California. Um, Do you think this is a good thing?
0: Uh, no, not necessarily, uh, because part of the thing that you illustrate in the article pretty clearly is that these changes have really eroded the work-life balance, and that's something that I am against.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of critics of this type of work culture, which I very much associate with Silicon Valley, but maybe there's a better term for it, um, is not something that's actually in workers' best interest. So offering someone free food or a chance to take a nap or or even spend some of their time doing something that's not work-related might seem on its face like something that is very much uh, for the workers' benefit. Unlimited vacation is another one of these examples where it seems um, like something that would only benefit the employees. But a lot of critics of this culture will point out that it actually creates an environment where people are staying at the office much longer, where they have much less time to themselves outside of work, and where their identities become entirely flattened to just their persona as an employee. Um, So there is some hard data around this. Unlimited vacation is a great example where companies that have unlimited vacation policies have found that their employees actually take less time off. Um, But there's also some soft data where people who are working in these types of companies, especially who are coming from other industries, um, have noticed that it actually really just flattens your sense of who you are and what you can do outside of work.
1: And I think that's bad. It's interesting you say that because one thing I have, uh, I'm currently reading Susan Fowler's book called Whistleblower. And Susan Fowler, for those who don't know, was a site reliability engineer at Uber. She had a pretty negative experience working at Uber. And after she left, wrote a blog post that along with other news reports that were coming out around this time period, this was back in 2017, um, eventually led to Uber completely restructuring. Travis Kalanick, the CEO, was pushed out, right? So she was a very influential you know, person in sort of the, the changing tides of Uber. But one of the things that she talked about is when she first joined Walking Around, and the person who's giving her the tour saying that the uh, engineers get dinner at night. And you're thinking, oh, like, especially if you're young, you're not making that much money, perhaps. Um, you're living in an expensive city, and you're thinking, great, dinner. But dinner was served late, specifically to keep people waiting around and working late at night. So there's this um, this melding of our work and personal life that happens. Sometimes and it's not just like a special occasion thing. Sometimes at these companies, the way that the incentives are set up or structured is so that you are always there, so that you never leave your desk, so that you never leave the office, so that you're working until 9 o'clock at night. And once that starts to happen repeatedly over time, you've basically eroded your personal life.
2: Yeah, and so in addition to, to Susan Fowler's memoir, a lot of people have been talking about Anna Weiner's memoir, Uncanny Valley, which is also a close-up look at what it's like to Work in startups in the Bay Area. And there's this great chapter where she talks about how some of these policies that seem really generous actually work against employees. And one of the examples she gives is um, a company that has a name your own salary policy, which seems really nice, um, but actually led to a pay discrepancy between men and women engineers that was so big, some female engineers ended up having to get corrective. Uh, salary changes up to $40,000. So these things don't always benefit employees in exactly the way they're intended to. um, And in some ways, I think, are very much designed just to benefit employers. There's a a big criticism of some of these types of workplace perks that uh, makes the point that the person benefiting at the end of the day is the investor who is making all the money um, and the workers who are... Sort of persuaded into this ultra productivity hus- hustle culture are doing so not for their own benefit, but to the benefit of the person funding the company.
1: Right. Yeah. Unless they have massive amounts of equity. But even then, you could say that some of these cush work policies are, in fact, benefiting the employer, even from a marketing perspective. Because, for example, you know, Amazon may have a culture of like, bring your dog to work every day right or i don't know free bananas everywhere or whatever their thing is but we know that like like some of these policies are like inherently classist because that's not the way that workers experience Amazon if they're working at the Amazon fulfillment centers. It's a vastly different experience from corporate than it is in, let's say, a warehouse, a fulfillment center, a data center, if you're a delivery driver, right? But the companies have the benefit of saying, look, we have foosball or, you know, flex, work from home. But that actually only applies to a certain category of employees in many cases.
0: I'm more in favor of perks that uh, instead of the ones that keep you at the office, they make it easier for you to get there and easier for you to do your job. So, for example, like snacks are nice and everything, but for all the money that they spend on providing dinner to people, if they stay late or if they have an open vacation day policy, they should do things like provide free daycare. For people who have children and they can bring their children to work and their children can hang out at daycare at work and then they pick them up and they drive them home. Or uh, transit vouchers, things that make it easier for people to commute in because they can get like a free train ticket or a free bus pass from their office. Those types of things are more inclusive uh, and benefit not everybody, but they benefit the people who need it the most.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and they, you know, they take a big chunk of pain out of getting to the office and doing your job.
1: Mm-hmm. I have to say personally, I did work for a company at one point that had an unlimited vacation policy, and I really liked it. <laughs> but I don't think I took advantage of it and please anybody who worked with me for that like 3 to 5 year period if you feel like I did, get in touch with me. I don't I really don't think I did. But there was something about knowing that I was sometimes working on really intense projects and sometimes that required some nights and weekends and sometimes these things would go in phases, like especially in our job, right? We know like when conference season is or I would start a new video project and I knew that would take up the next eight weeks or whatever it might be. Knowing that at the end of the tunnel, there was perhaps some time off waiting for me that I didn't have to like count the hours of the days and go, oh, could I take those full four or five days off? Just knowing it was sort of open. I I mean, I felt like kind of liberated by it. And and I imagine that people, to your point, Mike, who like maybe have greater responsibilities or people who are raising families at home and are like, well, I've got to like work around a whole, a whole variety of different schedules. Um, I would find that, I don't know. I found that to be very motivating at the same time. I could also see how in extremely pressure filled environments, it's not necessarily managers who are pressuring you not to take time off, but it could be your peers. It yeah. could create a social structure where you are expected to just be there all the time because that's what quote unquote everyone else is doing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And to be sure, you know, not everything about these perks is bad that would be painting with far too big a brush. I talked to some companies who are located outside of Silicon Valley and outside of the tech industry who are modernizing their workspaces sort of in the style of tech companies. One of them is uh, Cargill, which is a major food distributor, and um they told me they've taken lots of trips to the valley and have been very inspired by things like open offices and remote work <laughs> plans. And I think that's great. Like I don't think that I don't think that necessarily means that they're, you know, an evil company now or that their workers are going to be overworked. I think it's fantastic that they're you know, exploring things like video conferencing so that their workers can be at home some of the time. Um, I think where it gets tricky is uh, when the incentives for an employer sometimes overshadow the things that are actually good for an employee.
0: Yeah, you know, and I think Part of that is the technology that they use, which is a weird thing where Silicon Valley is influencing workplace culture even for remote workers and even for people who are taking time off. because with the proliferation of tools like Slack and um, you know remote calling, like eight by eight, and I forget what the Microsoft equivalent of that, is. oh Skype, that's right, Skype. <laughs> um, you know, there's this expectation that even when you're off or even when you're off hours, if you work in an office that is you know like three hours offset from the main office or the other way around, people can still reach you. Like my phone starts lighting up at 6 o'clock in the morning when my colleagues in New York show up to work and start asking me questions. And I'm like, it's 6 o'clock in the morning. So you sort of have to set a boundary in order to not be uh, sucked into this sort of cyclone of working all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, you know, what hath technology wrought? Well, it's made us always on in both good ways and bad ways and that's just like it's absolutely terrible that you know my colleagues can slack me at nine o'clock on a tuesday and then expect me to answer right away and not save it until wednesday morning Mm
1: -hmm. i think that goes back to what ariel said too about who is this really benefiting? And, oh, right, it's investors. I think that there are in any organization, and you could say, like, whether they're investors in a startup or they're the boss at a 100-person organization or whatever it might be, um, there are different levels of stakeholders. And so, sure, if a stakeholder says, I want to be up answering email at 6 o'clock in the morning and taking work calls at 9 o'clock at night across different time zones, if you're, if you're, like, a big stakeholder, in some regards, right, I'm using that loosely, like, Maybe that makes sense for that person, but you just can't expect everyone else is going to feel the same way.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, Arielle, thanks for coming back on the show. It was great to have you.
1: Thanks for having me. Everybody um, go read Ariel's story on wire.com because it's really good. It was the most popular story this week.
0: <laughs> it's still rocking and rolling. Yeah, it is. Um, and we'll have you back very soon.
1: I look forward to it.
0: Great. Uh, we are going to take a quick break right now. And when we come back, we're going to talk about security with Lily Hay Newman.
1: Da da. Da da. Da da
0: Welcome back. We are now going to talk about what's happening in the world of security, and joining us in the studio is Wired senior writer, Lily Hay Newman. Hi, Lily.
3: Hi. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. Thanks for coming on the show, flying all the way here from New York, where you're normally based.
1: It was all for this. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. When you said, Lily, hey, Newman, it sounded like you were saying, Lily, hey,
3: Newman. (laughs)
0: Yes.
1: Hey, Lily, Newman, hey. Hey.
3: What's up? (laughs) It's built in.
0: Um, But you didn't come out here just for the show. You're out here in San Francisco for the week for the RSA Cybersecurity Conference Tell us more about what the conference is, who attends, and what happens there.
3: Yeah, RSA is a huge uh, conference in the security industry, and it's really much more corporate than a lot of the other regional security conferences that go on throughout the year. This is a place to see and be seen for all the security companies and the industry as a whole to kind of get together, make deals, show off products. There's definitely a CES vibe to the expo floor. Uh, but there's also research that's presented at the conference and, you know, you panel sessions and things like that. So it runs the gamut, but definitely the trademark or hallmark of RSA is the corporate element.
1: So it doesn't have the same level of hacker cred that something like Black Hat or DEF CON or those conferences where people go and they're like, i mean, it show off these like these hijinks that I've been working on for a while.
3: Right. Yeah. Not as much colorful hair and, you know, fun outfits and everything, but Still, I think a lot of uh, hardcore people do end up at RSA, but it's just because of their industry commitments. So it's there's still a lot of good people there. It's just sort of not the same type of fun hijinks. Encryption is typically a big topic
1: at conferences like RSA. And it's just been a big topic in general lately. Even at our own Wire 25 conference last fall, we had folks on stage like Brian Acton from uh, WhatsApp and um, Chris Cox, formerly of Facebook, Um And Neuberger also, we talked a lot about, you know, Nick talked a lot about encryption with her. What's the general sentiment towards encryption at a conference like RSA?
3: Oh, well, at a conference like RSA, the sentiment towards encryption is incredibly positive. Uh, RSA always has a cryptographers panel every year, which is like one of the big highlights of the conference where uh, sort of, you know, titans of the cryptography industry movement, you know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, all get together on the panel. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, in that, in setting an environment, it's a really, you know, pro-encryption uh, group and space to be. But uh, like you're saying, definitely uh, there's more and more awareness about the other perspectives that are out there or the problems that in- encryption is facing or the pushback. So I think that has, is yeah, there's an influence at the conference of worrying about that, thinking about that, grappling with that.
0: Um, What I think you're talking about is the renewed push by the uh, Justice Department to force tech companies to build backdoors into encryption on consumer devices. Is that right?
3: Yeah. Consumer devices, consumer products, and global efforts to uh, undermine encryption in the name of law enforcement access. So Uh, There's a law in Australia. There's movement in the UK. uh, And so all of that uh, international uh, movement. There's also discussion in India. I, I think it just it starts to feel like it's the walls are closing in a little bit at a place like RSA where everyone is kind of on the same page, but feeling this external pressure.
0: So is that going to happen? Do you think that um, governments around the world will start to be able to gain access to people's uh, private encrypted communications and break into their encrypted devices because of backdoors?
3: It certainly looks like it's moving in that direction. I hope it's not the case based on what we understand about the protections that encryption provides to people worldwide and the disadvantages of undermining it, even as there are some advantages, allegedly, from law enforcement's perspective. Uh, yeah, so I hope it doesn't happen, but I, it seems to be moving in that direction. And the fact that multiple countries are interested in it and passing laws, that's what really starts to create the problem, because you know companies like Apple and, more recently, Facebook uh, have Tried to use their position of power to really push back and say no. This is a crucial user safety issue. This is a global safety issue. But you can't just pull out of markets left and right where your products are now illegal or you know where you don't want to comply with certain law enforcement requests. I, I don't think that is going to be realistic from a you know capitalist market share <laughs> standpoint. So. I worry about, you know, the direction things are creeping in because eventually that power that the companies are trying to wield is limited by their, you know, weakness, which is that they need to make money. Mm-hmm. So. Oh, is that what these companies are about? They want to Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. I came oh, on the podcast to drop podcast that podcast
1: knowledge. About that. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um. That's going to be a story I'm sure you and the other members of our Wired security reporting team will be covering um, really forever. Yeah. <laughs> I hate to break it to you, Lily. And we're on it. It's we're not, you're, you're on we're it. Way ahead of you. But I wanted to ask you about another story that you wrote about this week about a hacker, a penetration, a penetration hacker? Is that what it's called? Penetration tester. Penetration tester. Okay. Um, sounds dirty. It's not. <laughs> Who sent his mom in on a special mission. This is a fantastic story. Talk oh, about this. What, what's this about?
3: Yeah, this is a really fun story. So penetration testers are ethical hackers who get hired to try to either break into a physical space or break a product or, you know, look at your digital tech and find the weaknesses. uh, But they're not doing it for bad reasons. You're asking them to do it and paying them to do it so they can find the flaws before real bad guys do and give you a chance to fix them. So this penetration tester, uh, his mother had been in food service for many decades and then sort of wanted to retire or move away from that. Uh, and became the chief financial officer of his uh, security firm, his penetration testing firm. Uh, And she was just loving what she was hearing. She was hearing uh, all these stories from his colleagues and, I mean, had heard over the years about what he did. Uh, And she said, I want to try to break into something. I want to, yeah, I want to get in on the action. Uh, And he wanted to be supportive of that and thought it was a cool idea. So she posed as a health inspector, a South Dakota state health inspector, and went and tried to break into a prison that they had a contract to pen test uh, to try to find weaknesses in the physical security and digital security of the prison. Uh, So it's illegal to impersonate a health inspector. Do not do this on your own. But in the context of, you know, a contractual agreement for pen testing, you know, on the premises of the facility and whatever, it's fine. So she used all her past knowledge of food service to do like a full health inspection of the facility. Uh, She was swabbing, she was doing temperature checks, but she also just sort of said... Uh, Hey, you know, uh, as an inspector, I also need to see everything because I need to check for mold. I'm going to check for humidity everywhere, you know, and uh, look for if there's food out or, you know, unsafe working conditions. So she got to go to the network operations center where all the sort of uh, hive mind of all the computer defenses is located and also the server room. Uh, and she was just deep into this. Meanwhile, and she's inserting USB sticks the right. whole time. So meanwhile, she's not a technical hacker, right? Like the, the whole point is that she had this idea of how she could uh, physically gain access to this space. But she wasn't going to be able to do the you know, technical components of the hacking that you might do during uh, a pen test. So they had given her these little USB sticks called rubber duckies that you can plug in and get a remote access out of that. It starts beaconing out to whatever, you know, computer it's been set up to talk to remotely over the Internet. So uh, they had all these rubber duckies set up to, you know, beacon out or call out to her colleagues who were set up off the premises Uh, And so she was giving them access into the prison's facilities uh, to be able to do the technical part while she was just going deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, And then, do we want to spoil the end? Uh, (laughs) Should we tell people to read your story? Okay, well, she got so deep, there's like a really exciting own at the end. Uh huh. (laughs) And uh, sadly, this
1: woman whose name was Rita Strand, she did pass away. Yeah. Yeah. Which is I'm not spoiling the end. The no, and that yeah. no, that's of course that's, not the exciting end. Yeah, that, this was in, back part. in twenty six she did this in twenty fifteen, you said, and or twenty fourteen. Twenty fourteen. And then she passed did sadly passed 2016. away in twenty sixteen. But it sounds like I mean, sounds like Rita had some
3: real talent for this sort of thing. Totally. And I think from what I understand from her son, she definitely would have wanted to do other pen tests if she had been able to uh, and yeah, I think it, the story really illustrates how if you have a clipboard and some confidence, you can talk your way into a lot of stuff. And if uh, companies and uh, government institutions and you know, organizations aren't thinking about that possibility, what hackers call social engineering, uh, for someone to just come in and say, I have the authority to be here uh, and I'm going to roam around you're really screwed if mm-hmm. you know and but you can totally understand how it happened i mean the guards at the door they were trying to do their job they were you know trying to uh, comply with w- what they thought was an authority figure from the state so you know we understand how it happened but it's just a really fundamental weakness do you think it says anything perhaps about
1: these guards You know, I don't want to say they're biased, but how they perceived a woman approaching the prison saying I need to inspect something versus perhaps a
3: man. Definitely possible. Um, There was an anecdote that I didn't put in the story uh, about how Rita uh, decided to call the Network Operations Center, which is NOC. It's usually called a NOC. She kept calling it a nuke like, which also sounds like nuclear weapon, which is weird, but she, you know, meaning like N-O-O-K or something. She kept saying, where's your nuke? Where's your nuke? Because she thought it would kind of play into this idea that she wasn't too savvy and she didn't know too much. She was just trying to do her job as a health inspector. So definitely possible that she was sort of riding on all of that to, you know, to subvert people's expectations. Uh, But I think, Uh, You know, unfortunately, security is still a male-dominated industry, and most pen testers are men, uh, and they rock it out, too, and, you know, get in all sorts of places. So I think it's, uh, yeah, that type of thing is definitely a factor, but it also is just a, a blind spot we all have. Uh, When it comes to physical, you know, uh, in-person confrontation and sort of, uh, you know, a perceived authority and pushing back against that or asking more questions without seeming rude. Uh, Yeah, it's something in that area.
0: Well, that's fascinating. And I definitely encourage everybody to go read the story that you wrote about it on Wired.com. And also all of the coverage that you've been doing this week and in perpetuity Thanks. Of everybody trying to keep us safe and the people that they are fighting against.
3: Yeah, stay safe out there, everyone.
1: (laughs) Lily, are you going to uh, join us for recommendations?
3: Yes, I do have a recommendation. All right,
1: hold that thought. We'll be back after a quick break.
0: All right, welcome back, Lily. Let's start with you. What is your recommendation?
3: Okay, my recommendation this week is for a product called Danger Zone that was, it's not really a product, it's like a tool, you know, that's being released uh, from Michael Lee, who is the Director of Information Security at The Intercept. uh, And he has a history of doing cool projects like this. What Danger Zone does is it's an application for your computer that scrubs PDFs. When you get like an attachment, you know, in an email or something, Uh, it kind of, sandboxes it, quarantines it, and then goes through and combs for the malicious types of things that can be embedded in PDFs, and kind of cleans everything out, and then spits out a version for you that you can be a lot more confident is safe. Uh, And I just think that's a really cool tool. It's something everybody could use. Just sort of have it hanging out on your computer. Just use it occasionally when it comes up. Uh, And I think he's releasing it in the next few weeks. Uh, and just seems like a quick, easy way to be a little more secure.
0: Does it work with Gmail attachments?
3: Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah.
0: Things stored in like Google Drive?
3: Yeah, I think you can kind of run anything through it, but I think it's local.
0: So. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, like, I download a, it and it scrubs it when it downloads. Right.
3: It's right. not like a uh, Chrome extension or something. Okay. And the reason I wanted to recommend this, in addition to the fact that I think it's really cool, is that we have a story about Danger Zone on Wired.com today. And so if you want to hear more about it, you can check it out there. That sounds really useful. Totally. Totally. What's your recommendation, Mike?
0: I am going to recommend a memoir. It's a book called Acid for the Children, and it's written by Flea, uh, who is uh, a.k.a. Michael Balsery. He's the bass player who you may know from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And he was also for a time the bass player in Jane's Addiction. But he's Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So he wrote this book about his childhood, about his birth in Australia and then his move as like a young kid to Los Angeles. And going to high school there and just being like a free spirited kid uh, in the world of 1970s Los Angeles, Um, the book ends when he joins or starts the Red Hot Chili Peppers with the other people in the band and like. I grew up, you know, worshiping Flea because I, that's also my instrument. I also play the bass, and I played guitar as a kid. And I grew up worshiping this guy because in all of like the you know the dude surfer bands, there were some that had really exceptional musicianship, and Flea was one of those people. Um, he's a fantastic bass player. He also as a classically trained. Uh, trumpet player he's played in symphony wow. orchestras That's as a no trumpet idea. player so this book is really about like his own birth as an artist and what artistic expression means to him it's also just filled with like tons of crazy stories and really just reminds you of what it was like to be a kid uh before like the the, the always on world um when you just sort of left the house and you came back when the sun went down when you got hungry um it's just a wild ride and really emotional He is a fantastic writer. There are a lot of like rock star bios out there, but this one is just A plus writing. It's really good. So highly recommended Acid for the Children. Sounds like it
1: really makes you tick. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean? I don't get it. Flea. Tick. Oh. Like should people like jump to read it?
0: Uh. Now
3: I'm kind of itching to read it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I thought you meant it was like keyed up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Ticking okay. time up. bomb. I think yeah. I think people should take a bite, yes. Uh, <laughs> right. What's what's your recommendation, Lauren?
1: Oh, I look forward to bad puns. Um, my recommendation this week is a book called Whistleblower, My Journey to Silicon Valley and Fight for Justice at Uber by Susan Fowler. I referenced this earlier in the podcast when we were chatting with Ariel about her great story this week um susan fowler like i said was a site reliability engineer for uber during that time she had a pretty negative experience at uber she ended up writing a blog post after she left the company that really just shook things up and this is her memoir and i'm not totally done with the book yet but what's interesting is that like the first six six chapters or so are really about her life pre-uber which i found very interesting i did had not known all that much about her before and um then she goes into her experience at Uber, and we sort of know what happens there. But there are just more details, I think, and it really underscores some of the cultural issues that exist not only at Uber, but at Silicon in Silicon Valley uh, tech companies more broadly. And uh, I think really sort of shows the importance of having people who are... Of strong character who are willing to stand up to some of the things they see going wrong at these companies and speak up about them. So I'm joining it so far. I happened to see Susan speak this week at a bookstore in Silicon Valley about the book. Um, and uh, yeah, I recommend reading it if you haven't gotten the chance to yet. Stephen Levy also wrote about it for Wired.com if you want to go read that.
0: It sounds like a great follow-up to uh, Super Pumped by Mike Isaac, which we talked about last year when that book came out about Uber and Travis Kalanick.
1: Mm-hmm, we did. We had a we had Mike on the podcast, uh-huh.
3: which was really fun. He came back to Wired for it.
0: <laughs> so this
3: is like the other side of all the hijinks.
1: Yeah, mm. uh, if not necessarily like an other side of it, but an, uh, she expounds upon her experience. You know, yeah. she wrote this three thousand word blog post, and she said she she kind of realized that maybe that was leaving out some of her own personal experience. Um, at other places for example or her experience growing up that were very formative experiences in her life and um, yeah so anyway recommend it Whistleblower.
0: Whistleblower by Susan Fowler. Great recommendations everybody Uh, and that means that that's the end of our show. So thank you for being here, Lily. We really appreciate it.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me. It was so much fun. So and, great to have you on.
0: Thanks to Ariel Pardes for being here for the first half of the show. And thank you all for listening. If you have any feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. The show is produced by Boone Ashworth. Our consulting executive producer is Mr. Alex Kaplman. Goodbye, and we love you. <laughs>